Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, there are many ways of getting our show. In addition to the one you got us uh, today, you can download directly from our website at techcentral.ie. Use a smartphone podcast app. Uh, my favourite at the moment is Podcast Addict. You can use iTunes, of course, if you're with uh, Apple or turn us on every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. This week, we do so many great interviews and it's hard to squeeze them all into a show that we're going to do a double interview show today for you and in a few moments time we'll be talking to Rachel Ayres from the single Silver Spring Networks about the Internet of Things but first we talk a lot on this show about virtual reality and augmented reality and rightly so because they're probably going to be the future of computing I mean we saw that on last week's show with the whole Pokemon Go which is taking the world at storm at the moment right now most of those applications seem to be, like the Pokemon Go, in gaming. But what comes after gaming? And how long is it going to take augmented reality before it gains mainstream appeal? To talk about this, Niall met Damien Cranny, who's the founder of Big Motive, a company that looks at creative newses for new technology. I'm speaking with Damien Cranny, who's the CEO of Big Motive. Uh, now, Big Motive is a creative technology studio, and they've got offices in Belfast, London, and Derry, so predominantly based in Ireland. And what they do is they take on projects to do with various kinds of digital media. And in particular, I want to talk to Damien about their work on virtual reality. Uh, now, we've talked an awful lot on the show uh, before about you know gaming as sort of the gateway drug to virtual reality. Um, but that's obviously not all the medium has to offer, is it? No, Niall. Um, one of the things that we are particularly interested in the moment is, um, I guess, virtual reality as a storytelling tool. Um, so one of the projects we're working on at the moment uh, as a piece of innovation, uh, which, is, which is really our sweet spot, is um, this space around um, actual physical stories. So, you know, storybooks, for example. So we're working on a project at the moment to try and adapt uh, kids' storybooks, um, you know, traditionally kind of two-dimensional um, books that are kind of with a linear narrative and trying to kind of, can we can we explore that as a, as a virtual experience? So we're looking at the likes of uh, grim fairy tales in a, in a virtual environment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you imagine the, I mean, typically storytelling is kind of played out um, as the sort of the standard roller coaster experience. So imagine you've got a headset and you're kind of moving along a z-axis, you know, from foreground into background. So we're interested in kind of trying to kind of think about narrative as um, as a paradigm and what are the other ways that you can experience a story? You know, like can you? Is it better to kind of go from start to finish or can you kind of interact with a with a story in a different way? And then also, you know things like timing um, things like you know using kind of two dimensional versus two and a half D um, all those issues but essentially uh, allowing kind of kids to sort of explore their imagination and experience the story in a different way and I guess that prevents, presents uh, an awful lot of new challenges for uh, developers, particularly people that have been working in the gaming sphere where they, they have to go from thinking about um, 3D on the screen as opposed to a, a much more immersive experience. Do you find that there's much of a skills gap in that area at the moment? Yeah, there, I mean, it's, we, we're, with this particular project, which we're calling Paperverse, 
Um, we're specifically interested in. Uh, I, I see it, we see the kind of potential in actually kind of you know unlocking. Uh, innovation for the likes of publishers. So we think about companies that have lots and lots of IP in the form of kind of, you know, storybooks that, you know, it's very, very hard, becoming increasingly hard to engineer a hit. So is there a way to kind of adapt two-dimensional content into a more interactive experience? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're obviously kind of working with Unity, but we're also kind of working with artists producing original content that previously would have been, you know, standard stuff, illustrations that go, go into books. Um, but I think the challenges are around new challenges, like how you move from scene to scene, how you kind of maybe think about a kind of overall narrative structure and thinking about interaction design, so using kind of gaze cues. Um, and also when you start to think about a younger audience, like five to nine-year-olds, for example, what is what is completely intuitive to a five to nine-year-old versus maybe sort of a more seasoned gamer? So a lot of debate uh, as we're working on the project as to whether, whether or not it's an interactive story versus is it a game? Uh, and I think actually it's somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. It's a very interesting sort of... Di- it's not even a dichotomy. I mean, they're... they're- they exist along the same continuum of, of uh, gaming and storytelling, where where you're taking away the sort of the the visceral element or or the kinetic element to a to a certain extent. How do you see people interacting with that sort of stories and virtual reality? Uh, is there a different model? Is there a different sort of um, outcome in terms of maybe learning strategies or do you think this will just become a medium very much akin to reading where people will sit down and they will interact with the story in the same way as they would a book but not a tv show um it's interesting i think i think it's about um there are certain tricks that we're building into the experience whereby we're asking you know we're kind of breaking up a, a story into a set of stanzas or a set of chapters, for example. So by completing the chapter, perhaps the reader, or in this case the viewer, is presented with a challenge. So you maybe kind of have to complete a challenge and maybe figure out what that challenge is. So you're using the game po- gaze pointer, you're looking at a scene, you're trying to kind of complete a sequence, perhaps, uh, in order to unlock the next stage. So so high level of, of interaction that has to be intuitive, uh, and has to has to relate really to the context of the story. And in this case, it's about a little girl who lives in Ireland in a sort of a, in a sort of a, an island, well, an island nation based on Ireland. Uh, let's call it that with a, with a big dark secret. Um, so one of the things that we've we'd come across in our in our conversations and research is uh, an experiment that Samsung are running at the moment, um, and actually very very focused on context around the user so they see a high incidence of people and um, professionals with young families who are traveling so actually that sort of you know by location of imagine kind of the busy professional who's you know staying a night in a hotel and little kids at home and being able to kind of use mobile technology to kind of connect and and sort of both both people really hang out, parent and child, in a sort of this virtual world to sort of do that kind of recreate, I guess, that sort of you know tell you know tell kids kind of the bedtime story before they go to bed. I think it's actually called bedtime stories, so it's a bit of a hack they've put together at the moment. So we'll see. So you basically be able to dial into your kids' sort of um, yes. fairy tale world. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible actually, isn't it? It's really kind of the ultimate. It's the ultimate get out clause, really, for not being at home enough. Um, but that's that's exactly it. It's it's storytelling through virtual world, uh, through the virtual reality. And actually, it's kind of an, it's an interesting use case, really, where they've. I mean, I think all great products, all great innovations are kind of, um, you know, 
served with empathy really as we kind of you know talked about kind of recent in a recent conversation i think you know great problems are kind of solved by really really getting close to kind of understanding it's more than user needs it's really kind of looking at the world through the eyes of the user so what samsung have done is they've kind of identified something which is is is, is really quite pertinent in this kind of you know the world's getting smaller we're traveling a lot more we're away from home perhaps a lot more so actually there's a perfect um, use case for, for for storytelling in vr of course, one of the major problems with VR is actually getting the hardware into people's hands, and because the the prices vary so much from, you know, say you've you've got a, a reasonably good smartphone and a, a Samsung Galaxy Gear, all the way up to you know the likes of the HTC Vive, where you're looking to fork out maybe up to eighteen hundred euros for the for the full setup. So when you're developing a project like this at the moment, which devices are you thinking of? Are you thinking of this is going to play? great in a full room, massively specced PC, or are you thinking this is going to work really well on a smartphone because it'll be in everybody's hands? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're, we're thinking specifically about mobile. As a, as a company, we're interested in uh, mobile innovation and, and, and specifically partnering with IP companies and content companies. So, so storytelling is something we talk a lot about. I think practically, still early days, I mean, so much hype uh, around VR at the moment. Uh, but then there are kind of more informed kind of, you know, um, people in the media kind of saying, you know, actually in two to three years, it's still going to be early days for VR. So we're interested in Google Cardboard at the moment because it's the most accessible um, uh, sort of medium for VR. I mean, it's it's a classic sort of Google approach to any new channel in that they'll kind of massively lower the bar to adoption in order to kind of reach as many people as possible. So for what we're doing, we're we're prioritizing narrative, we're prioritizing storytelling and, and interaction, and then we think, well, how, how kind of do we kind of reach as many people as possible first? So cardboard makes a lot of sense. Also interested in... in um, uh, I guess kind of Samsung's platform simply because um, there's a kind of a big link up there with Google but in terms of the overall kind of user experience um, iOS and, and Cardboard is really the, the kind of the uh, I think that's kind of the way to go for us. I think one of the problems with uh, any technology when it's in its early days is, is that it takes a while to find its feet and for people to go actually this is, this is what we use it for I think when um, the iPhone came along it was a nice piece of kit until the app store opened and then it sort of opened up the, the world of what the smartphone can do for people and when it comes to understanding virtual reality I think there, there have been quite a few dud experiments at the moment particularly with people constructing experiences and then actually having you know, no actual application out in the world or they end up being canned or anything. Can you tell us a little bit about projects that maybe you know, were very interesting but just didn't find an audience or didn't find a use case? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely um, lots of people that are sort of interested in the space. I mean, we, we, we haven't um, spent too much time, we haven't wasted too much time on, on projects that didn't work per se. You know, I think there's a kind of a, um, there's, there's definitely a kind of a, a sense of, you know, the risk in spending too much kind of innovation budget in something that's not going to produce a kind of a viable a sort of commercial 
uh, exercise. We are seeing um, opportunities in the, I mean, one in the sort of aerospace industry. Um, uh, training is is something that's becoming um, in, increasingly um, popular. I mean, if you think about sort of anywhere that there's an opportunity to, to transport someone into another context, another environment, that actually doing that physically would 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 come with a huge cost or a huge risk or health and safety issues. I mean, these are these are areas that are sort of increasingly interesting. So we have a partner who's also working with the Ministry of Defence, actually, over in London. Um, big top secret project, but again, uh, you can start to kind of see the sort of applications in that industry where there are kind of big risks in terms of kind of security and cost and health and safety. And um, that seems to be, there seems to be some traction in that space, certainly a lot of interest. And uh, we're seeing it used quite a lot in live events as well, I mean, where you're, you're not actually constructing sort of the, the virtual, but you're using things like 360 degree video. Uh, the, do you see the potential for this kind of thing um, sort of in the, in the entertainment industry or, or, or in maybe the sports sector, or, or is this sort of uh, resting in the realm of novelty? Well, I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think if you look at music, um, you know, there's an industry that's kind of really struggled to kind of find itself and find its commercial kind of sweet spot. Um, you know, in, in a world of kind of streaming, um, live events has almost kind of been the jewel in the crown. Um, big companies like Live Nation you know, in the last ten years have really kind of been the sort of the saving grace of kind of the music industry. Um, so. When you start to think about the relationship between kind of you know band and kind of fans, um, that fan engagement piece is really really interesting. And obviously VR allows uh, broadcasters, you know, rights owners, bands themselves to kind of reach a much broader audience. So the trick is, is you know, you know, how do you kind of go from being at home and kind of really experiencing it, and at what point do you say, okay, I've had enough of that? <laughs> you know, it's still it's not quite. Um, so I think I think it's a kind of a middle ground between you know watching something on your telly and actually being at the gig you know vr kind of allows you to kind of you know go up a notch and um, so so that presents another challenge and can you know can we kind of you know get the devices into people's hands and can we stabilize the technology where you can actually be in a vr environment for like 60 minutes for example um so um so yeah i think there's there's applications there i mean stepping out of um Stepping out of entertainment for a moment, we're really interested in, you know, big solutions that might kind of, you know, really disrupt other industries. I mean, the one that we've talked a lot about is actually travel. Um, disintermediation, you know, the kind of the word that we use for disruption before disruption, um, taking out the middleman. I mean, things like TripAdvisor really have revolutionized the travel industry. I definitely see an application where VR can kind of offer, offer an opportunity to sort of try before you buy. You know, so before we kind of, we, we really prioritize ratings and reviews, you know, what do other people who have been to this, this place, you know, hear, say about it? I mean, imagine being able to kind of actually kind of, you know, experience a hotel before you went there. Mm. I think that's kind of, that's going to be a fun thing to do. Uh, and I, I guess that sort of would be um, a massive thing maybe for a band looking to um, recce a venue or something like that or, you know, film locations, that sort of thing. Indeed, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can see that kind of being a, a, a again another application. It's this bi-location thing. I mean, you need a infrastructure. You've got to think it through and think about you know going to the actual location with a rig, you know, shooting kind of short form video. Um, but then if you think about kind of you know what Google are doing and this kind of you know you know penetration of, of device and headwear, and then you sort of think about you know them sort of commercializing their own kind of you know VR rig. Uh, I'm not too sure how far we are away from people actually kind of shooting 
shooting 360 video and then start to think about kind of, you know, YouTube kind of opening the doors to kind of 360 video and trying to really democratize that. So imagine a time when, when people are out there posting 360 video reviews of places and, and then kind of enabling the kind of the crowd, in inverted commas, to then kind of, you know, experience in that. I think it's kind of, uh, it's an interesting time. And, you know, would, do you think there's a, a timeline on the mass adoption of VR? I mean, are, are we looking at five years, ten years? Are, are we looking at even sooner? I, I think it's probably longer um, than most people expect. Um, I think there's probably um, going to be a kind of a, a, a sort of two to three years of kind of, you know, mistakes and kind of, you know, disappointment um, before um, I think the, the kind of the, the, you know, there's this kind of alignment or crystallization of, you know, stabilization. Um, to enable kind of you know removing kind of any sort of feelings of nausea, uh, I think also getting over things like what we're experiencing is you know is VR going to cause problem for for children? You know they're already kind of you know obsessing about YouTube. Um, is it safe, for example? So I think we kind of need enough uh, good content that's out there, um, and also you know like you know the sort of malevolent forces also you know this you know we're reading kind of reports about. Um, people playing kind of, you know, VR versions of Grand Theft Auto, you know, and the actual kind of, the, the sense of presence that comes with that and that sort of up close and personal kind of realisation that this is actually quite violent content. And then there's the kind of porn industry as well and, and, you know, all that that presents, you know. So I think we've got to bypass all of that as an industry, as a new channel that has to mature. Um, and I think the, the, you know, mass audience needs to kind of get comfortable with that. At the moment, it's kind of a, it's an abstract thing and there's a lot of curiosity and some excitement. Um, so, yeah, I think probably three to five years is probably a more likely time frame. Thank you, Damien. Thank you very much, Niall. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Damien Cranny from Big Motive. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Tech when we talk about the Internet of Things, conversation almost always comes back to how important quality networks are to make things happen. Basically, if you don't have a good network, well, then you're not going to have a successful project. Niall Kitson spoke to Rachel Ayres from Silver Spring Networks about the importance of infrastructure and in particular a project in Cross Malina and County Mayo that may have national implications. I've come out to Croke Park this afternoon to meet with Rachel Ayres, who is the director for the UK and Ireland of Silver Spring Networks. And uh, particularly, I want to talk to Rachel about a project that is going on in Cross Malina at the moment, uh, involving the Internet of Things and a a brand new network for the area. But first, Rachel, just to tell us a little bit about Silver Spring Networks, because when we talk about networks at the moment, we instantly think broadband, but that's not necessarily what you do. That's right. Thanks, Niall. Um, yeah, Silver Spring Networks is one of the uh, world's leading providers of IoT networking platforms, Internet of Things networking. Uh, we have 23.6 million devices on our network on five continents around the globe. Um, to, to put that in context, we process almost 44 billion transactions a year, which is 10 times the amount of PayPal. Um, we work with lots of cities around the world and utilities around the world to help them improve their services to their customers and citizens. Okay, so when we're talking about um, uh, um, sort of service providers, we're looking at power stations, we're looking at water management and measurement, we're, we're looking at almost down to the level of air quality really, aren't you? 
Yeah, we and in fact we do a lot in that area. So, so we typically find that, that that it's sensors that we're working with. So things that can sense what's happening in an environment and potentially control, um, be controlled over the internet using our uh, specific Internet of Things communication platform and control data platforms. So uh, specifically today, I want to talk to you a little bit about a new project that you have in Cross Malina. Now, at the moment, it's, it's referred to as a, an IoT network canopy, but uh, just tell us a little bit about that and de-jargonize it for us. Yes, okay. So, um, so the project is something we're doing in conjunction with the SEAI, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, and County Mayo and some of our partners. And what we've done so far is we've we've delivered what we call a canopy, an an Internet of Things network across the whole town, which is controlling and managing streetlights in the town of Cross Malina. Um, That's phase one of the project. Phase two is an energy efficiency project for the residents of that town. So it will enable residents to track and monitor their energy usage in close to real time, see how much they're paying for their energy, really engage with their energy and and receive tips and advice on becoming more energy efficient. On the lighting side, um, this is something that we do a great deal of around the world. Um, Aging streetlights can can cost up to 40% of a city's energy budget. Um, uh, So controlling streetlights intelligently can reduce that but it can also deliver real obvious benefits for citizens so it's been proven that it can reduce traffic accidents by one percent in some of the global deployments Um, and it can prevent tens of thousands of customer complaints to a council in an average sized city so just to give one example of how that might be visible to to the residents of the town something we're doing in the city of glasgow in the uk is um, what we call dynamic street lighting So lights can be dimmed to a low level at night when there's nobody around. And then when they sense that there are people or cyclists or vehicles on the street, the light level can be increased just while there's there's what we call occupancy. And that's something that that saves an awful lot of money in terms of energy consumption and CO2, um, but also enables uh, citizens to go about their daily business safely. And do you find that um, when people have the option... Um, of gauging their energy usage, uh, people become an awful lot more proactive about what they use and um, I suppose generating their savings on their own bills because they have something like a a mobile app just going, okay, you've, you've actually got your meter ticking over here unnecessarily. Yeah, that's certainly been our experience around the world and that will be part of what this project will try to prove specifically for Ireland because every country is different and every culture is different. But you're typically talking um, high levels of engagement and energy savings of, you know, depending on on the particular programme and the particular region of up to 8% um, on on an average consumer um, bill. So you talked earlier there about working in a larger cities like Glasgow. So when you're looking at a, an area like Cross Malina, which is an awful lot smaller, what sort of challenges came up there? Because immediately when people think of you know the, the Internet of Things or the Internet in general and rural Ireland or smaller towns in Ireland, they don't really mesh together particularly well. Yeah, so I think there are a couple of technology um uh, things to discuss in that question. Um, one is the the kind of crossover with things like rural broadband. 
What we're saying here really is that these kinds of uh, uses in cities and in energy efficiency and Internet of Things type communication require a different kind of, of network and a different kind of platform. So um, there is no real crossover with things like broadband. We do occasionally need cellular coverage somewhere in the network to to do what we call backhauling, getting data back to the data centre. But it's quite flexible where that can be, so so bad coverage isn't necessarily a big problem. Um, In terms of scaling down from, from the kind of... 5 million plus device deployments that we see in places like California um, we're starting to do more and more smaller projects particularly in places like Europe um, Asia, India Um, and we find that typically as long as you've got um, and to put it in context relatively short distances between devices you you know our, our network can what do something called hopping for up to 20 kilometres, technically. So as long as the distances are are shorter than that between devices, it doesn't tend to be a problem. We found in Cross Malina, we've got 300 streetlights there, for example, and and the network is performing absolutely outstandingly and everything can see everything else and talk to everything else. So what sort of, um, I don't want to say an end game, but how do you see this project proliferating? proliferating throughout Ireland. Are we going to need buy-in at the level of county council on a a case-by-case basis? And then the SAI saying, actually, we do have this laboratory in Cross Malina where it has delivered services. Or are we going to see a case of county councils looking at Cross Malina and going, actually, let's let's bring these guys in off our own bat? Is it going to be a hard slog selling job across the country? So I think we would... We don't know, but we would expect a bit of both. Um, I mean, we have a real focus on Ireland uh, in Europe because um, for three reasons, really. Ireland is a real leader in the in the low-carbon energy um, transition across Europe. So that even things like your um, renewable penetration um, for, for generation is really high and is, is planning to go higher. So that's, that's a really good driver for, for the country to do more. Um, there's also a focus on CO2 reduction in the local authority sector. And then if you look at Ireland as a country, it's a fairly small, innovative country with a lot of collaboration between different stakeholders. So they're all reasons why we focus on Ireland and why we think it's a, it's a, it's a good place to focus our efforts. How it will play out in the future, I don't think we really know yet. So, so um, it's great to be working with SEAI and it's great to be working with a council. Um, next steps remain to be seen. So are we looking at a stage where if you're, if you're sort of proliferating through neighbouring areas, are we still going to have localised networks looking at, after very localised um, amenities or is each sort of uh, sub-network, if you will, going to connect up? It can work either way, um, is the truth. I mean... Yeah, it really depends on the drivers from the local authorities' perspective or any national players um, in the country. So I think we'll have to um, we'll have to see kind of who wants what in that sense. And in terms of the back end, then the technology that's actually going to make make these networks go. Tell us a little bit about that. So Silverspring is uh, completely committed to open standards right throughout the platform because we think that's where all technology uh, development ends up and it, and it facilitates lower cost and, and increasing uh, market for all new technologies. Um, 
in terms of the Internet of Things, the there are some predictions from people like McKinsey that there will be 50 billion devices connected to it by 2020. The economic impact of those will be up to 11 billion euros. Who knows? Um, but, but there's one notable study that said that the use of open standards platforms in, in the development of this marketplace could reduce um, the cost of implementation by a third. Um, and that's because you're able to not repeat the same um, technology initiatives over and over again, but you can do everything on, on simple platforms which use multiple vendors and technologies. And I guess that opens up an awful lot more space for collaboration with uh, either other network providers or academics. Yeah, absolutely. And device manufacturers as well. So, you know, for, for councils that are looking to do more than street lighting or energy efficiency, there are all sorts of things that you can do and things that you can connect to these kinds of networks that we do around the world, you know, EV chargers, traffic control, pollution monitoring, flood sensing, all sorts of things. And each city is different in terms of what they want and what they're interested in. But that's, that's where we see this going. And what would be sort of your, your ideal city? Where would you like to work on? Wow. Um, well, Dublin sp- springs to mind for all sorts of obvious reasons. Um, and then, uh, yeah, a lot of the, the smaller regional parts of, of Ireland, because there are such specific problems, you know, like not very dense populations or flooding or transport, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be good to work in all those different bits of the country. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Rachel Ayres of Silver Spring Networks. That's it for our show for this week. Remember, you can get more on what we heard on the show today, along with everything else that is happening in the world of Irish tech news, with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie, as well as our little weekly tech radio show that you listen to right now online. And it's also broadcast every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. From Niall Kitson and myself, Dusty Rhodes, Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.